Well, good morning, church. How you doing? Hey, if you're new, I want to welcome you. If you are a first-time guest, thanks for coming. We recognize, especially with summer, there's a lot of other places and other things you could be doing. And so it's not lost on us that you're here, and we're grateful that we get to help uh, you encounter God in, in ways that are real and relevant and hopefully reach you right where you're at. We, uh, as a church, are, uh, we're just a group of broken people who are redeemed by God and desperately searching out his truth to live the life that God's called us to live as we wait with great anticipation for eternity. If you're, if you're watching on our online community, I want to welcome you as well. Let me invite you right up front to go ahead and out your Bibles and jump to the book of Titus, the book of Titus. If you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and throw your hand up, and one of our ushers or elders would be happy to bring you a Bible. This Bible is yours to have and to keep. I want to encourage you to also come prepared with a pen or a highlighter or a pencil, some ways that you can take down notes and follow along as we go through uh, each time we're gathered together through the Word of God, specifically right now through this uh, series we've entitled Timeless Truths. If you were here last week, we kicked off a brand new series, and it's going to take us all the way through the summer months. The reason for this series is multifold, but not the least of which is that we live in a day and age where truth seems to be relative, that everybody looks at relativism and and approaches life and truth based on circumstances and various other things. But the one thing that never changes is God or his word, his truth. The Bible is inerrant. We believe that it is perfectly inspired, free from flaw, that the Holy Spirit makes it active and alive in our hearts today. And it is good for teaching, for reproach, for admonishment, for growing in our faith, knowledge, and understanding. And this is literally, this is the foundation for which, as a church, we do all things. As Christians and as believers, this is our guiding light. This is what we look to to take us through it. If you were here last week, we started with Titus chapter 1, and we made it through four verses. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Today, you will be encouraged to know that we are going to make it through four verses. Chapter five, or chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and, uh, and we will be lucky to get there in time. I read last week, this letter is from Paul. Now, Paul was writing this letter to the church in Crete. He was writing to a young pastor named Titus. He was writing from Macedonia. He was writing on a missionary journey, and he was writing in between imprisonments in Rome. He was writing to a young pastor who was responsible for caring for the needs and raising up the biblical holiness and godliness that these individuals were called to as churches were popping up all over the island of Crete. The island of Crete is on the Mediterranean Sea, close to the Aegean Sea. It is an island off of the, the, the coast of Italy, and it, it was, at the time, was under Roman Empire and had all kinds of Grecian influence. Paul was writing to Timothy at Titus at the same time. So he sent Timothy, who was a young pastor in Ephesus, this first letter, and it, following his first letter to Timothy, he sends this letter to Titus. The letter to Titus is then followed by a second letter to Timothy, and they are very similar in approach. They're very similar. There are a lot of parallels being drawn, which lead us to understand that Titus is a young pastor with a lot of energy and excitement for the word of God, the truth of God, and for the people of God that he has been responsible to care for. Now, let me talk to you about Crete for a moment. If you were here last week, then we talked about the term Cretan. Don't be a Cretan, or you're nothing but a little Cretan. Crete as a nation, had a, had a reputation for being a bunch of liars. This was their national identity, that they were all a bunch of liars. They were known for embellishing the truth. They were known for making up lies. They were known for false teaching. They were known for false doctrine. They were known for idol worship. And they were also known as these young churches are beginning to emerge. They start in Acts chapter 2, which we'll hear in a moment. But as these young churches are popping up all over the cities of Crete uh, on this island, they, are ha- they have a really big problem with young believers who are new in their faith, 
new in their knowledge, new in their understanding, who have one foot in the church and still have one foot in the world. And so Paul then writes this letter to Titus about how to instruct, how to encourage, how to love, and how to lead the church. And then he talked last week, we talked about Paul introducing himself based on his position and his purpose. When he said, I am a slave of God, that was his position. He was a bond servant. And then he said, and I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, we talked about his position being a slave, but his purpose being an ambassador for Jesus, to represent the gospel. He said, I've been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth. This, again, is imperative to understand that he's writing about truth to a culture that is full of lies, that shows them how to live godly lives. That is kind of the premise for the entire book of Titus. It shows us how to live godly, holy lives built around grace rather than works. Then he says, this truth gives them confidence, not that they, have, uh, that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. We talked about how when we buy into the lies of the world, that we understand a false confidence, but, and that there are some things that God cannot do, one of which is ever lie. The fact that cannot, God cannot lie or changes his position means that we can have a confidence not only in God, but in the truth of God's word. This is where our confidence comes from. In verse 3, he says, and now at just the right time, he's revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. We have a responsibility. Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all these things. Acts 1, 8, and 9, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We have a responsibility to do it now, to be active, not inactive, simply holding on until Jesus comes again, not standing around wondering what to do or, or, or even learning how to do it but not applying it, that our time is now, that we have an appointed season in our lives. God is entrusting us, you and me, with the gospel message the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through grace, God's redemption at Christ's expense, and we have a responsibility to take action now. Then he says, verse four, I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. This is a form of encouragement, reminding Titus, number one, that he is loved, number two, that he's not alone, and number three, that he is sharing this burden with him. And then finally, I'm gonna start off where we finished off last week, and when he says here, may God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior, give you grace and peace. And we finished up with the thought or the idea or the understanding last week that grace always comes before peace throughout scripture, that people search the world over in search of peace. And what we end up with is with a lot of cheap imitations. We end up with uh, people burying their, 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 their identity in the bottom of a bottle looking for peace, that people search the world over for false religions looking for peace, that people go from one broken relationship or bad choice after another in search of peace, that people will even come to church searching for peace. But until they understand and accept the grace of God, Meeting us where we're at, identifying that we have God's riches at Christ's expense, that he sent his one and only begotten son who he loved because he loves us, that Jesus gave up his life, the final blood sacrifice and atonement, was dead, buried, rose three days later, and then gave us instruction and ascended, and he's coming back. That is the grace that saves us. We are saved by grace, not by works, so that none of us can take pride in ourselves or boast about ourselves. And until we experience the grace of God, through a right relationship with Jesus, we will never know peace. To know the peace that surpasses all understanding, we have got to know Jesus in a right relationship. Yesterday, I was picking my daughter up from a friend's house. And I'm new to Blair. I've been here eight months. Blair is not a big 
city in, uh, or town. It's, it's, it's not a huge, uh, you know, uh, county. But if you're not from here, you can get lost, especially if you stick to the main roads and you identify where you're at in Blair based on the restaurants, Fernando's, <laughs> Ace Hardware, Walmart, uh, Ford, Ford Hill. Uh, like, like, you identify where you're at. So, hey, so where do you live? I'm over by a pizza hut. Oh, got it. I'll see you in a few minutes. My wife yesterday made two mistakes. Number one, she asked me to go get my daughter. And number two, she gave me the, the, the address but no instruction. And so what I did was I grabbed my phone, my GPS global positioning system, and I clicked the text message from Stacy, and it pulled up a map. I left my house, and I only had to go 1.5 miles. I run a mile right now in around 9 to 10 minutes. It took me 15 minutes to go 1.5 miles in my wife's minivan. I drove out of my street and I turned right because the GPS told me to. And then as I got to the end of the block, it had me circle back around. And then I had to take a ride on 16th Street. It took me all the way into Blair where I turned right at Fernando's. I ended up down by U.S. Bank. I took a ride at U.S. Bank. It drug me around kind of by MCH. I dropped around over kind of by Dana. And then it came back around. And after 15 minutes, I drove into this neighborhood that I had been to before, but I hadn't identified this address. I drove right on past where my daughter was staying. And I stopped. And I was so excited to be lost. I was thanking Jesus. God, I thank you so much for the slow speed limit in Blair, and I thank you so much for my GPS that is clearly stupid. (laughs) And as I looked down, I looked at my phone, and apparently when you have GPS on your smartphone, which is smarter than me, it gives you options on how to drive or travel. It gives you an option to take transit. It gives you an option to drive your vehicle. It also has, of all things, a walking option. Apparently, when you drive while it's on the walking option, you can't walk through trails and through yards and through, so it just kept taking me back around because I was walking. (laughs) What I've identified now is I hold a world record for speed walking. According to my phone, I look down, I'm like, what is this? So I'm starting to push buttons, and I look up, and here's my friend's daughter's mom waving her arms at me, Uh, and my daughter was convinced it wasn't me, but it was my wife, because I was in a minivan, and I don't drive a minivan, but I do drive a minivan, but she's convinced I don't. So I drove around, I got into the parking lot of this woman's house that was flagging me down to pick up my daughter, and I told her what happened, and she just kind of looked at me. Like, yeah, no, we've been here. I asked how long you've been here, and we had this conversation. It was great. What I do know is if they would have, if my wife would have said, hey, it's by Steve Lacey's house and behind the Mormon church, I would have known exactly where I needed to be. I would have made it in about 90 seconds. But the fact that she just gave me this, this, this address, and, 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 and my GPS thought I was walking, it took me 15 minutes. I was so frustrated. I was so lost. I didn't know where I was at. And this is exactly what Titus is dealing with. Titus is dealing with a lot of brand new Christians who had no idea where they were at in their faith. They knew about Crete because they had grown up there. But in their faith, they were brand new. They didn't have clear directions or clear instructions because they were allowing the outside influencers and the influences to direct their lives. They were allowing lies to infiltrate their lives and their faith. They were allowing false doctrine and false teaching to infiltrate their lives and their faith. They were allowing idolatry 
to infiltrate their lives and their faith. And on one hand, they were desperate to grow in their faith and in the knowledge and in their grace of God. But on the other hand, they were so accustomed to where they had been and those that had been speaking into their lives that they allowed misdirection to take place. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is one of the cheesiest examples that I can ever give you, but I hope it hits your heart and makes total sense. We need to move away from GPS in the sense of a geographical positioning system, and we need to move into the GPS in our faith and in our lives as gospel that leads us, the gospel positioning through scripture. Write that down, that'll preach. It's about to. GPS, gospel positioning through scripture. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd open up our hearts and our minds, that you'd meet us right where we're at, that we would encounter you, God. But don't leave us here. I invite you to change the composition of our hearts, that we might be able to wrap our heads and our hearts around your word. Holy Spirit, illuminate our minds. Challenge us, instruct us, inspire us, move in us and make us fully obedient and surrendered to your truth. I pray in Jesus' name, and now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be holy and pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, with your Bible open, turn to the book of Titus. We're gonna spend the next few minutes together reading through verses five through nine. And as we did last week and have been for the last eight months, I'm going to stop about every other word and we're going to talk about it. So with your Bibles open and more importantly, with your heart and your mind open to the full counsel of God's word. Let's do this together. Are you ready? All right. Bibles open, pens in hand, paper ready to go. Here we go. Paul is going to start off by introducing two significant reasons that he's writing this letter, reminding Titus of what he is responsible for there. He says, I, Paul, left you... Titus, on the island of Crete, so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. Two reasons that he reminds Titus of what he's doing there, so that Titus doesn't stand around looking at the people who are wandering astray and asking himself, what am I doing here? What is this about? God, what do you have me here for? The first is to complete the work there. The work began in Acts chapter 2, verse 11. If you want to hold your finger in the scripture and just flip with me over a few books to your left, you'll find right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find the book of Acts. Turn to chapter 2, verse 11, where we see it says, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. The day of Pentecost... The Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples, the apostles in the upper room. Peter goes to preach the first gospel presentation ever given. And that day, 3,000 people come to faith. But the unique thing is that people from all over, from all regions and nations, had come there. And there was speculation that Peter was drunk because of the language that most languages didn't interpret or understand the one language. But in God's sovereignty and his power, he made that, that message understandable to each individual based on their nation, their tribe, and their tongue. Among those were those from the island of Crete. So the work of the gospel, the work of establishing the early church began all the way in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and it carries on. So Paul reminds Titus, look, we started this work together, and we've got work to do. And I'm leaving you on the island of Crete to press on, to take hold of, and to continue the work that we, that we started together. And he says, together, 
He reminds Titus again, you're not alone in this. Why? Because none of us, church, was ever created to do life and ministry alone. You go back to the original creation of the world where God made Adam. Adam God establishes the earth. Adam names a bunch of it. And then God gives Adam Eve, which is the establishment and the importance and the priority of godly relationships. God first, then your family. We were never called to do life and ministry alone, church. Not in senior level leadership, not as, as disciples of Christ. We are called to do it together. And Paul reminds Timothy of that truth. The second reason, the second reason that he writes is he reminds Paul, or Paul reminds Titus rather, that he has got a responsibility to appoint elders. And with the appointment, now between Titus and Timothy, we get 19 characteristics of leadership in the church through elders. But Paul is going to give Titus 17 Five prohibitions or things that they cannot do as elders in the church, and then 12 active expectations, 12 things that they must employ. Now let's talk for a moment about elders. God has clear calls through the Holy Spirit for whom he chooses to be an elder. But what I also know to be true about Scripture is that each one of us is responsible to aspire to apply the whole counsel of God's word in our lives. Every one of us, male, female, man, child, black, white, red, green, purple, every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ, though we may not have the appointment by God to be an elder or a spiritual overseer of the entire body, the, the, the church, we do have a responsibility to strive to attain those things through the power and the presence of God. It's not about works, it's about grace, but with grace comes a responsibility for approving ourselves and our faith. And so as we read this, I don't want you to disconnect for a moment and say, well, he's just talking to the 10 elders and the staff of this church so we can check out, honey. No, 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 twofold. One, you've got to know these characteristics so that you can hold me accountable and you can hold our elders accountable and you can hold our staff accountable. And two, you've got to know these characteristics because you have a responsibility and an obligation to apply these principles to your life. Listen to what he says in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. You can go ahead and hold your finger there and jump back over. Acts 14, 23. It says, Paul and Barnabas also appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting. They turned the elders over to the care of the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Church, I want to talk to you a moment for, uh, just for a moment about governance in the church. There are several examples of what leadership in the local church looks like. In the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, a new model was introduced in church governance that was called a congregational-led church. The problem that I see with congregational-led churches, and I am not here to assign value or to devalue any other church. That's not what this is. But I am called to preach the whole counsel of God's word and to teach what his truth says. Nowhere in scripture do you ever see a congregationally-led church. It doesn't exist. The, the, the point where the whole church then gets to vote on what we do. That is not biblical. Let me give you one of the most ridiculous examples. If you follow me for a minute, then you'll understand what I mean. In Exodus chapter 20 and even before that, Moses goes up on the mountain, meets with God for 40 days, comes down with the, with, with the Ten Commandments, and he's illuminated because he's been in the presence of God. God gives him clear-cut, concise instructions on what he is supposed to do and how he is supposed to lead this group of Israelites from Egypt and into the Promised Land. Now, as I read the stories... Nowhere do I ever see good coming from a leader in the church, like Moses, where God gives him clear instruction and he says, okay, God, I get what you want, but I got a million people down there. Let me go talk to them and make sure they're good with this. We'll just take a vote. 
How stupid does that sound? Nowhere in the New Testament do you see any of the apostles getting a clear call from God and saying, okay, but let me go back to Corinth and make sure these people who are so far from you are good with what I want to do. It doesn't exist. And what happens then is a byproduct of the, this new model that was introduced in the uh, early 20s and, and carried on throughout. It came about from a country club mentality. It came about from social groups. It came about from a business board meeting example where people were appointed and they were given terms. Again, the problem is it doesn't exist in scripture. So you have a congregational-led church, you have an elder-led church, and you have a staff-led church. The latter two almost are one and the same because the word elder is the same word in the original language as pastor. Different responsibilities, same role. So let me talk to you then for a minute about this, how this happened is people or why I think congregational churches outside of being unbiblical and where people get this idea that voting is a good thing is a good, is a good idea. Voting stopped when the apostles determined that they needed to replace Judas Iscariot who had killed himself because of shame and guilt of denying Christ, turning on him, turning him over to the centurions. So what they did then is they took some rocks, they evaluated the whole community of believers, about 148 at that time, they wrote down the names of those men that qualified based on the characteristics and how they lived godly lives, they put them in what you and I might consider to look like a wok today where you make stir fry, they put these rocks in the wok and they would stir the names around until the rocks fell out and the rock that was left, the name on that rock, they determined to be the man that got appointed for eldership in the local church or to be an apostle. But that's the last time that you see that. So when we vote as a congregational church, just very pragmatically now, what I've seen throughout my own experience and what I've heard about through countless others in ministry is that congregational-led churches that vote on elders and vote on all the decisions of the church, it turns out to be nothing more than a popularity contest and political. Under my leadership, I don't care about popularity and we will not become political. We appoint godly elders based on the characteristics, the 19 characteristics we collect from Timothy and Titus. When you vote, people who, people, especially this is true of larger churches, either they're going to vote for who they know or they're going to vote based on a face that they recognize. But how can you adequately cast a vote if you haven't had time to pray about it, think about it, investigate and vet these individuals that are applying for or have been uh, offered an opportunity for eldership? It does, it, you can't do it. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. Titus, I am leaving you there to lead the church, and part of leading the church is you've got churches popping up all over Crete. You can't do it all by yourself, so you must appoint elders. That's what it says. That is the, the kind of the primary purpose of his statement there. Now we're going to get into these 17 characteristics. You ready? Buckle up. Verse 6. An elder must live a blameless life. In the original language, it literally means above reproach. Let me tell you something that I think disqualifies people in their own minds. They look at this scripture and they misinterpret the word blameless for sinless. Romans 3.23 tells us all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We can go back to the original garden and look that, that sin was introduced at, 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 the, at the very beginning. The first sin of man falling, disobeying God, eating of the, the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, choosing his will over God's ways. And so we see early on that there is no such thing as a sinless person. We must not, when we consider our elders, look at a sinless 
person. We must look at a blameless person. And to be blameless means you are above reproach. It means that you are in good standing with those in your community and that you live a life that does not lend itself to even misinterpret your behaviors. Let me give one simple example that we hold here fast and steady as a staff. I do not permit or allow any of our staff members to ever be in a vehicle alone or in a building alone with someone of the opposite sex that is not their spouse. It is not that I think that they're going to do some, something grossly wrong or sin or that it's incredibly negligent. What it is is we are called as, as elders and staff members to, to, to be above reproach. In other words, let's not give any op- opportunity for people in the community to have ammunition against us. They're already looking for it. Let's not encourage it. Let's not give them an opportunity to, to say, well, they're having an affair, or why are they there alone, or what are they doing? It just will not happen. Because we need to be above reproach. We need to look at our lives and, and ask ourselves, so far as it is within our reach, can we make decisions that set us apart, that don't lend themselves for misinterpretation, misrepresentation, in our words, in our actions, with our social media accounts? People are looking for a reason to find fault with you. We've got to live lives above reproach. That is the first thing he says, and not only does he say it once, but you're gonna find out he says that twice. The second thing that Paul says to Titus is one of the scriptures that is most taken out of context throughout the Bible. He must be faithful to his wife, or a husband of one wife. When we read that on the surface, without understanding culture and context, which is what I talk about all the time, that in order for us to really adopt the whole counsel of God words, we must understand context and culture, because the more you understand context and culture, the better you are able to understand and apply the word of God to your lives. So when we look at this on the surface, it says, or it reads, that you have to have only one wife if you're going to be an elder. Well, people have used this for centuries to disqualify people to the ministry of the Lord, because they say, well, he's been divorced. What happens to the guys who were divorced and they had no control over it? Well, and so we look at this and we say, well, they, they, they can't do ministry if they've been divorced. That is not at all what Paul is saying here. What is going on in context now is on the island of Crete and throughout Grecian culture, there is a, 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 there's a propensity toward polygamy where a man would be married to more than one woman. Why? Ah, heavens only knows. <laughs> but they did. And so this, this polygamous lifestyle then, not, it would take away, Paul said, as far as it is with, with you, you'd do well not to get married. Why? So that you can devote your full time, full attention, full energies to God. But if you're going to get married, he, and he get outlines how we're supposed to live as, as husbands and wives. But what Paul's saying here is, look, if you're going to get married, don't do it more than one time to one woman or two. You know, just, don't be stupid. He's saying, be faithful to the woman that God has entrusted you. Honor her, love her as Christ loved the church. Be willing to lay down your life. Put her needs in front of your needs. Consider her better than you consider yourselves. Nurture her, care for her, protect her, provide for her. The clear outline throughout scripture that we're called to is what Paul is addressing here. He's not saying that if you have ever been divorced because you made a sinful choice, because your wife left you or anything like that, that you're disqualified for ministry. That's not what this says. Be careful when you're judging those that God appoints in leadership. Then he goes on to say, kind of addressing the family, he says, and his children, now the elder's children, must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. This is also one that is misunderstood. I don't think it's misrepresented intentionally, but it can be very misunderstood. I want to give you an example personally. 
I have a daughter, 21, who will be 22 on July 13th. If I read this at face value, it says that your children must be believers and they must have a good reputation not being rebellious. Let me ask you a question then. If I raise my children up in the Lord and do everything I can to bring them up in the right way so they become believers, but then my children walk away from the Lord. They walk away from ministry. They walk away from the church. They, they completely tune me out, which is what they do most of the time, but then they, they completely, they, they just disassociate from me. If my daughter goes and rebels and lives a wild life, does that disqualify me, disqualify me from my calling to be a pastor? Why not? Yes, free will, but if we read this at face value, it says if your children are rebellious, then you're disqualified for eldership. Let me explain this to you. In context, the age of accountability for children was 13. This is where you celebrate the bar mitzvahs and the bar mitzvahs. The age of accountability then at 13 represented that you were moving from adolescent and into adulthood. And as an adult, you had free will and you had the opportunity and the ability to make your own decisions about what you believe and what you're going to do with your life. I should not, nor should any of you be disqualified from ministry when your grown children make reckless decisions. We do, however, have a responsibility to raise our children in the Lord. Let's look at this together. Hold your place in Titus. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. I'll give you a second to get there. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 through 4. Galatians, Ephesians. Here's what Ephesians chapter 6 says. Verse 1 through 4. He says, Children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And if you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you and you will have a long life on earth. Stop. This is where most parents, uh, they'll take this verse and they'll make their, their children write it down a hundred times when they, when, they, when they disobey. Or they'll make them memorize this and repeat it and recite it. And, yeah, honor your mother and father. Two things about that. Number one, what is the prequalification for honoring your father and mother? In the Lord. If your parents are asking you to do things that are outside of Scripture, not things you disagree with, but things that are outside of Scripture that are sinful, you have an obligation to obey God first. So when your parents are telling you, you have to honor me in the Lord, well, then start acting like the Lord. My children never say that to me. I'll tell you what, they won't be able to speak for a month. <laughs> but my point is, so I'm not giving you ammunition. Kids, if you're hearing this right now, you don't get to talk to your parents that way. But my point is, parents, give them a reason to honor you. Give them a reason to follow you, to obey you, to love you, to serve you, and to bless you. Because the second part of this, it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. We have a responsibility to raise our children in the Lord, which is the first promise that goes, or, you know, the first commandment that goes with the promise. And the Bible also says that when we raise our children in the Lord, that when they're older, they will not turn from it. They will return to it. Parents, look at me for a second. Don't miss this. Are you living the kind of life that represents the Lord well and that you want your children to follow? Or is this a do as I say, not as I do thing? Give them a reason to follow you. By how you live your life, and with how you instruct them. This is a responsibility that we have as elders. Then it goes on to say, verse seven, starting at verse seven, a church leader is a manager of God's household. This is the first time we see a different phrase used, but a parallel. He says elders and now manager. 
Did you know, and I just said it a little bit ago, but elders and, man, and pastors are the same word. They're synonymous with one another. Different roles and responsibilities. It says that some are called to be pastors, some teachers, some evangelists. But elders appointed in the church, anointed to lead the church, have a responsibility to manage well. This is first seen in, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I'm sorry, Numbers 18. If you want to look and see the establishment that God gave of the priests and the Levites, you can learn all about it in, in uh, Numbers. Numbers chapter 18. Part of what the high priest was responsible for was managing the ceremonies, the sacrifices, preparing everything for that, atoning uh, through the sacrifices of their sins for God. He was responsible for interceding on the people's behalves because they did not have a direct relationship with God. This individual was also responsible for interpreting the word of God as it was read. The Levites were responsible for managing the day-to-day operations of the synagogue or the temple. They were responsible for managing the money. They were responsible for caring for the grounds. They were responsible for delivering the scrolls that that had the word of God in it. And then in later times, as you continue to read, you'll learn that Levites then were responsible for not only delivering, but also presenting the message and interpreting it. They had a a responsibility to teach and to manage well. We have a responsibility to, 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 to be good stewards of God's kingdom, of what he's given us, and to manage well. Our elders have a gross responsibility. It's significant. It's important. It's valuable. I believe with all my heart that God used some of the most humble men that I've ever met. If you're new to our church, what I'm going to say to you may be a foreign thing right now. For if you've been here for any time, what I'm going to say is still going to be incredibly uncomfortable and painful for you to hear. But a year ago, August... This church went through a horrific church split. One of the worst that I've ever seen as far as the damage done to the local church. Not only the local church. If you heard when I did our our Live It Up series, we talked about what God's idea and understanding of of church uh, splits are. Number one, it, it divides the church. And number two, it's devastating in the community. And that's exactly what was taking place. There was division and it was devastating. But there were five men that God appointed to oversee the responsibility of this church. And because of those men, I am standing here on this stage today proclaiming the gospel message. We start a brand new series in September called At My Church. It's going to be about our mission, our vision, our values, what we're called to, where we're going. It's exciting. I, I've mentioned it every week for the last two months because I'm a little jacked up about it. If you don't know what jacked up means, I mean, it's just hopped up, excited, looking forward to it, stoked. It's just my, my, you know, my, uh, I'm, a, I'm a Generation X. That's a word we used. <laughs> we have a responsibility to live a blameless life, he says, after that. Not only do we have to manage God's household, but we, he says it again. He must live a blameless life. He must be above reproach. All right, here we go. He says also that an elder in the church must not be arrogant. I go back to the two reasons that people tell lies. The two primary reasons that people tell lives is to evade trouble of some kind. The second reason is to make people believe something about them that isn't accurate. They puff themselves up. They build themselves up. They embellish. They make things up that never existed because they want people to like them. They want to fit in in the culture around them. They, 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 want, to be, they want to be seen as better than they are because somehow they think that if they don't have the same experiences as others around them, that they're, in, you know, that, 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 that they're not significant, insignificant. That's not what's going on at all. And so Paul tells Titus, look, make sure that the people that you're leading aren't arrogant, that the people you're appointing to lead these churches are not arrogant. Why? Because arrogance drives people away. You can smell arrogance from a mile away, and it drives them away. It's like a fresh-hit skunk. 
It stinks. Arrogance stinks. And it's not a, a, a demonstration of how Jesus lived his life. Look at me, uh, not look at me, look at, with me to the, uh, to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take interest in others too. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Considering others better than ourselves doesn't mean that we have to agree with everything they say. A lot of times what people say is absolute garbage. But humility is lending a listening ear. It's being intentional about respecting that relationship, investing in someone's life. You don't always have to, and I str- I'm going to be honest, some of you are going to find this really hard to believe, but I kind of talk a lot some, sometimes. And not only that, but I've even heard throughout my life, but even recently, I've heard there's no way that this guy who's only 38 years old could have experienced everything he's experienced in his life. You don't have to believe it. I lived it. You don't believe it. My, my mom's moving out here September 1st. God bless her and help us. It's going to be awesome. I love my mom. But my mom and I have very similar personalities. That's all I mean by that. She's four foot nine. I'm six foot one. That's a little bit different there. But uh, here's where I'm going with that. I'm bringing my mom out. And anybody says, well, there's no way you could have done all that in your life. Here's my mom. She adopted me off the streets when I dropped out of high school, had a kid at 16, and was involved in gangs. Like, why would I, what makes that stuff up? Yeah, I lived a horrible life before. <laughs> no. We've got to be intentional about not, oh, that's why I said that. We, you don't always have to tell your story. I remind myself that all the time. Andrew, they don't really care about your story. They're busy telling their own, so shut up. Like, they start to say something. People I meet with start to say something, and I've got five examples of how that happened to me. They don't care about what happened to me. I've learned to preface. I've learned to ask permission. Do you mind if I share an example from my life? I don't want to make this about me, but I think we can draw some parallels. And I've never heard anybody say, no, your life sucks. It's all about me right now. But I get permission. The other thing I've had to learn to do, and it's not metaphorical, it is physical. Some of you will really like this. Especially with some of my staff. I'm going to talk about Pastor Richard for a minute because he told me that if I wanted to look like him, I'd get hair plugs. So I'm going to talk about him for a minute. <laughs> Pastor Richard talks a lot and very rarely leaves details out. And I talk a lot and I also like details. So we get going and it's literally like, and we talk over. I've had to learn over the last several years in life and ministry to bite my tongue. And by bite my tongue, I mean literally. I don't stick it out because that would look awkward and be kind of rude, but I will bite the tip of my tongue and keep my lips shut. Mm-hmm. 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 Like, and when I do that, you might get, you know, our office manager, Terry Hodson, might come and say, Pastor, are you sick? You okay? Checking my head. You ain't saying much. No, Terry, I'm just trying to consider others better than myself. Leave me alone. <laughs> We've got to not be arrogant. All right, he says, here's another one. Pay attention to this one. An elder must not be quick-tempered. I don't even know what he's talking about. (laughs) This is one of the areas, this is why I praise God that he says blameless, not sinless. This is an area that I'm really, really, really 
working on. I am a passionate person in nature. Dr. Brent Burson, who is a uh, founder and owner of, uh, of the largest Christian counseling firm west of the Mississippi, uh, was a really good friend of mine for three years, and I also met with him as an accountability partner and counselor. And he said to me one time, and maybe you've heard that before, that's okay, I've got the microphone, you don't listen. <laughs> he said to me one time, Andrew, I love watching you in action. Like, he, I, he qualified me as being a little OCD and a lot ADD. And he said, when you're OCD and, and you're ADD, it's like a perfect storm coming together. And he said, the great thing about you is your passion is what is contagious. People are drawn to you when you get into the word of God and when you start preaching the word of God and how you live your life. I had an individual yesterday. We played four extra innings of softball on Friday night, and it was like kissing your sister when you're done because we ended in a tie. And I, that was not, I just don't like that. But we got done, and I met with somebody on the team, of the other team, yesterday just in, at random, and he said, man, that was one of the funnest softball games I've ever played in my life. I'm like, yeah, it was really good until we ended in a tie. Like, I'm a passionate, he said, I love how competitive you are. I'm like, me, competitive? No. <laughs> I've had to temper it a little bit because it can be intimidating. Not only that, but I'm a big guy, six foot one, 230 pounds, and a big personality. And so Dr. Burson said, one of the greatest things about you that God has blessed you with is a dynamic, passionate personality. And you get really excited really easy. He said, but on the other side of that, when you get upset about something, watch out. You're just as passionate. You're just as excited. We gotta be careful not to be quick-tempered. James 1.19 says, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I'm learning to what it means to be slow. And then he goes on to say, he must not be a heavy drinker. I'm gonna, I wanna address this for a second. There are whole systems of theology that preach and teach that if you're a leader in the church, you can't drink. Let me tell you officially, that is a lie. It's not what scripture teaches. When I was going through my ordination, I had to do a 30-page kind of a thesis, and then I had to sit with an oral board where for about five hours, they asked me any question they wanted to ask me, and all I could have was a, a Bible with no markings on it and no, no tabs. Any question. And at the end, they wanted me to sign a covenant that had 17 things that I was agreeing to in the denomination. I signed, I initialed, what I, they had never seen this before, I made lines next to each one of them, and I initialed 15 times. I did not initial two of them, and then I signed at the bottom with an explanation of why I left those two unsigned. I want to be a man of integrity, and I cannot agree to all 17, one of which was that I would completely abstain from alcohol. Let me tell you something that you might find surprising. I don't drink. I never have. In my adult life, I've maybe had six glasses of wine, a majority of which uh, have come from people in the church that are elders. Why don't I drink? Number one, because I know that I come from a long line of addicts. Number two, because I know that my pendulum swings one way or the other. I'm all in or I'm all out. Number three, because I'm convinced that alcohol is an acquired taste and I'm not interested in acquiring it. Like if I want to go drink sour diesel fuel, <laughs> you better have my head checked. Number four, I hate being out of control of my body. I already have a hard enough time keeping myself control. I don't need something taking me away even further. And number five, everything negative that ever happened to me in my life from age zero to five or zero to 16 was a byproduct of alcohol and drugs. And so I stayed as far away from it as I could. Also, I wanted to be a good athlete, the best I could be, and I didn't want anything messing with that. 
It doesn't say not to drink. In fact, if you read 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, Paul encourages Timothy to have a little wine, a little red wine, because it's good for your digestive enzymes. It's good for your heart. It's good for thinning the blood. It's, it's, it, it was acceptable, widely acceptable in their culture. The problem isn't with the little wine. The problem is with a lot of wine. I think about Robin Hood and, and uh, Friar Tuck. Uh, he, he really enjoyed communion, didn't he? That's what he's talking about. But let me tell you this. As a pastor, I have chosen to abstain from alcohol because of what Paul said twice prior. I want to be above reproach. I don't want people to think ill of me. I don't want people to look at my life. I don't want to, I don't want to cause somebody to stumble. That's an alcoholic. And you know what else? I have never had anybody come into my office that quit drinking and said, since I stopped drinking, my life is ruined. I don't mismanage my money anymore. I'm not late to work anymore. My wife likes me. I, I, it just sucks. I've never had that happen. The number of times I've had people come into my office because of drugs and alcohol that their life has been devastated is countless. I mean, if there's a thousand really good things to drink, why? Why? And if you're relying on alcohol, it means you're not relying on God. So you must not be a heavy drinker. You must not be violent. Let's talk about violence for a second. This is not just the physical striking. Violence, this violence is in the form of physical abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse, and verbal abuse. You can't be mistreating people. You can't be violent in nature. And then he goes on to say, or dishonest with money. What this means is, is lying and cheating for personal gain. Cheating on your taxes. Cheating on your timesheet. Cheating on, on the hours that you write in or, or don't write in. Cheating on what you do while you're at work. You claim 50 hours, but you really only work about 30, and the rest of the time you're on social media or having conversations around the water cooler that aren't, they're not honoring God because you're not talking kind about your boss. We're not called to be dishonest with money. We're called to be good stewards. We're asking right now for you guys to think about the Youth Center Initiative. We have a dream. Our youth leaders have a dream to transition our, our atrium into a youth center. Why? Well, because eight months ago, we had 40 kids. We finished out the year this last year with 170 teenagers at our end-of-year celebration. We got to have a place to put them. Right now, they hang out in our offices, and they play with my stuff, and I don't like that. So before you leave today, you go to that board, you pick off one from 200, grab four or five of them all I care, stick some money in, put it in there, and tell them to leave my office alone. We want to provide a place where they can come to a safe environment and encounter God through relevant ways, through relationships, through the word of God, and a place where they can come after school and get some study hall help and get some, some tutoring and, and, and a place where they can go downstairs and pray, a place where they can go and meet with youth leaders and to talk about their struggles and their relationships and all that goes on in life. We need this youth center. Our community needs this youth center. Would you step up and help out? in raising the funds that we need necessary. We want to be good stewards. We're not just going to pull $10,000 out of our budget to build an atrium. We're imploring you to get involved and to give above and beyond your tithe that God has called you to. It's called an offering because you believe in what we're doing here. All right, that's money. Now, rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home. This reminds me of 2 Kings chapter 4 with Elisha and the Shunammite woman where Elisha, every time he would come through town, she would invite him in for a meal and over time she built a room above her house because she wanted to have a place that he could call home. Can I I'm going to talk to you for a second. Some of you are going to be upset by this, but don't be mad at me because I didn't say this. I'm going to tell you what I'm hearing from people in our community. When I got here, I started doing my due diligence. I started kind of checking out the community and what the perception of our church has been and what the perception of the community is at large. This has even happened as recently as yesterday. 
I heard this from more than one person yesterday. Here's what was said. If you're not from Blair, people just don't care. Let me say that again. If you're not from Blair, people just don't care. They don't care to involve you. They don't care to get to know you. They don't care to, to meet you where you're at. They don't care to help you. They just, if you're not from Blair, if you can't go back two or three generations and say, I'm from Blair, they just don't care. Now, that's not been my experience entirely because this church has loved us and spoiled us and cared for us and looked out for us. But I will tell you that when people don't, when my hat's off, and, you know, my pastor hat's off and I'm just in the community, I've experienced that by and large. I'll walk by and say hi to people and they'll just go, huh. And it's two reasons. One, they don't know who I am or two, because they do know who I am. <laughs> that's it. I learned more about myself in eight months from what people say in the community than I've ever known about myself before. All of it is untrue. But people have opinions based on their perceptions. I met with a woman just this last week uh, as I was standing where I work. I work out at Anytime Fitness, and I was standing there, and uh, this lady came in and, and identified who I was, and we talked for an hour in the middle of Anytime Fitness, in the middle of my workout. And I, was, I know, right? I was shot after that. My buddy Ronnie came in. He's like, so you're done already? I'm like, man, I got interrupted. I got to go. Your body cools. Anyway, different thing, different time. We were talking, and I learned more about myself and what people think about me from this individual than I've ever heard before. And I've met with this person five or six times, and I said, have you ever heard me say that? No. Have you ever listened to my sermons? Yeah. Do you, have you ever heard me even insinuate that? Nope. You know my personality from the several times that we've met. Do you? No, I don't believe it at all. Well, then would you do me a favor? And when people start to say that stuff, just stop them. Don't listen to it. Don't encourage it. Don't, don't entertain that garbage. And not just of me, but of anybody. It's called gossip. Gossip is a sin, one of the deadliest. Just shut them up. Tell people, they say, oh, I heard your pastor said this. Go ask him yourself. I'll go with you. You want to know what he believes? Ask him. He's not shy about it. You want to know what he believes? Sit down. Let's open the Bible. Because the only thing I've ever heard my pastor preach is the whole counsel of God's word. Word for word. I don't add to it. I don't take away from it. I just preach it as I see it and as I understand it and as the Holy Spirit illuminates me. Praise God. Then he says, he must enjoy having guests in his home. You know what Hebrews actually says that we got to be careful about how we invite people into our lives because we never know when we're entertaining angels? I want you to try something this week. Well, how can you be hospital? How about you start with a smile? People are going to look at you with a smile back or they're going to look at you like you're the strangest creature with two heads. <laughs> you know, little kids, you go to Walmart, you walk down, you go like this, Hi! They're going to do one of two things. They're going to hide behind their mom's skirt or they're going to just start showing off. Hi, how are you? And I'm like, yes, another ADD, OCD. I'm good, how are you? <laughs> Be intentional to go and just say hi. Invite people to your home. Buy them a meal. Talk to them. Invite them into your lives. Most people don't even care what you can give them. They just want a relationship. They want to know they're cared about. I heard from a person yesterday in these conversations who said, on Facebook, a woman went to her Facebook and the Blair, uh, I don't know if it was Blair Swap, I think is what it was called, and she wrote on there that she was looking for a friend, that she's been in this community for a year and a half and not one person has ever reached out to her. As a church, I won't stand for that. We are going to go and make disciples by how we live our lives and inviting people to live it with us. And even if they don't want it, we're going to invite ourselves into their lives. Smells good, what you cooking? I'm coming. <laughs> All right, that's not what the Bible says. It's my interpretation. And he must love what is good. Church, 
Listen to this, Philippians chapter four, verse eight. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and what's honorable and what's right and what's pure and what's lovely and what's admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Don't get caught up in your circumstances. Don't get caught up in false doctrine. Don't get caught up in false teachings. Don't get caught up in the lies about you, whether good or bad. Don't get caught up in all the garbage. Don't, 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 don't be, you can't be led by your emotions based on circumstances. Otherwise, you're an emotional roller coaster and everybody's gonna throw up on the ride. You gotta, you, gotta, you gotta look at all circumstances and say, my circumstances are bad right now, but my God is good. My health isn't great right now, but my God is great. My relationship's kind of horrible right now, but my God is faithful. Things aren't looking too promising right now by the standards of this world, but I have a promise of eternal glory because of Jesus. That's pure, that's holy, that's lovely, that's admirable, that, that is right. And we are called to be responsible to think about these things. Why would you want to think about anything else either? I mean, you got Jesus ready to call you home, waiting for you, which we're all supposed to anticipate. You're like, no, Jesus, I don't want to experience glory. I like weeping and gnashing of teeth. I like suffering and having ailments. No, I'm just going to stay here and hate the world. Don't, don't come too fast, Jesus. I'm too busy being miserable. Stop it. God's given you plenty of reasons to be grateful and to celebrate. Namely, you live in the United States of America. And for the record, you attend one of the greatest churches on the planet Earth. Then he goes on to say, we're gonna wrap this up. Hey, if worship team, you can hear me, y'all can come out. I was supposed to be done six minutes, 12 seconds ago. Come on out. (laughs) You know why that clock doesn't have any hands? It's not what you think. It's because the word of God is timeless. Uh, And I don't want you to know how long I've gone over. An elder must live wisely and be just. He must make sound decisions. He must use good judgment when making decisions. Not making irrational decisions, not making decisions based on emotions, not making decisions too quickly or too, too slowly, but he must make sound, wise, and just decisions. He must live a devout and disciplined life. Devout literally means to be holy. Holy means to be set apart for God. To be set apart for God means you deny the things of the world and you turn your life fully to Jesus. An elder must be devout. He must be holy and set apart for the good graces of God. You thought I talked fast before. We're still going. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. In other words, he must have a total grasp of the word of God. An elder has to know what the word of God says, how to find it, how to use it for for reproach, how to use it for admonishment, how to use it for encouragement, how to use it to weigh truth versus lies, to guide their lives. And finally, he must be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching to show those who oppose them. We don't oppose based on our personalities. We don't oppose based on our opinions. We don't oppose based on our experiences. We oppose all things in life based on the truth of God's word. That's it. You want to know what this church is about? We are country Bible church. Everything we do. You know one of the lies I've heard in the community recently? I've heard this. Listen to me. I've heard that I preach an inch deep and a mile wide and that we're just all about being a seeker-friendly church, making everybody happy. Have you all been happy with me the whole time I've been here? Don't answer that. Don't answer that. (laughs) And don't ask my wife. My business is not to make you happy. My job is to lead you to be holy. And I'm going to say things that you don't want to hear. I don't care. I mean, I do because I want you to like me. But I have a greater responsibility than what you think about me. We want to be the church that God has called us to be. It is going to be based solely on Scripture. Sola Scriptura. 
The next time you ever hear something stupid about our church being an inch deep and a mile wide, say, have you been to our church? Nope. Have you heard our pastor preach? Nope. Then shut up. And if you don't even go to our church, what do you care about complaining about our church? But if you want to know what we're about, come on with me. Take their hand, drag their sorry bus to church. And sit them down. Let them hear what an inch deep looks like. An hour and a half later. Followed up the day after with a blog, reinstating, re, reiterate, reiterating what God says and using scripture alone. All right, question and big so what? Question, here's a question. What are you using to direct your life? Are you letting people direct your life? Are you letting thoughts and opinions direct your life? Are you letting feelings and emotions direct your life? What's your GPS? What's your geographical position? The big so what is this. We must rely on the gospel position through scripture in order to get where we need to go. Not where we want to go, but where we need to go. Sometimes what we need, in fact, every time what we need is more important than what we want. If you want to live a life dedicated to Jesus, get your GPS right. Evaluate it. Gospel position through the scripture. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. It's in your holy name that we pray that you would be blessed and glorified, honored, inspire us, encourage us, motivate us, move us. Father, as we finish up with worship, I pray that you would just meet us, continue to meet us where we're at, and that we would adopt your truth into our life and apply it this week. In Jesus' name, amen.